Knack knack. Who's there? Uh, yeah, I'd rather not share that with you. Hey, no sweat. Come on in. Make yourself at home and take anything you want. Wait, you wouldn't let a stranger in your house. Why would you let anonymous traffic scrape your website? Introducing IP Info's Privacy Detection API, a fast and simple way to detect malicious traffic. Activate your free trial today at ipinfo.io. And don't forget to use the promo code CODESTORY at checkout. So we felt very confident about knowing the problem space very well. Then it was all about finding problem solution fit. And the way we went about finding problem solution fit was experimental. And the analogy I love using is um, finding this fit for us was kind of like throwing darts blindly at a dartboard. The best way to hit a bullseye is to throw a ton of darts and to learn from each dart that you miss. The worst thing to do is to spend a lot of time on one dart, make it super aerodynamic, paint it and make it look great and everything and throw it and it wildly misses the mark. I think the latter is more or less what we did. My name is Andrew Zhao. I am the co-founder of Kona. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lavhart, and today, how Andrew Zhao created a pathway for your daily check-in for mental health directly in Slack. All this and more on Code Story. Andrew Zhao grew up in the Bay Area, which he claims was a great place to grow up in. However, he noticed that it was sort of inauthentic, as in no one really did things for themselves. Eventually, he dropped out of college to build something based on authenticity. Outside of tech, he's been doing art for more than a decade, and he loves to ski and rock climb as well. In regards to art, he actually finds it challenging to be creative in an artistic way, because his creative brain is mixed with being highly analytical. Andrew and his co-founders were inspired to build something around workforce management. They knew something needed to change, but wasn't sure where to start. After building many solutions and pivoting, they landed on their current venture around mental health check-ins. This is the creation story of Kona. Kona is a tool that helps companies empower their managers to build better cultural habits. What that looks like right now is a daily red, yellow, green check-in. How are you feeling? Red, yellow, green. You can attach an emoji. You can write a quick collaboration. Very, very, very simple. The magic is what's around that. So, you know, how do we build trust and psychological safety on the team so that people are comfortable feeling not great at work? You know, everything is non-anonymous. So building that trust is crucial for the tool to work. How do we coach the manager to be vulnerable and to lead with that level of vulnerability? Last but not least, how do we coach managers to handle situations where their teammates are feeling, let's say, yellow and anxious, for example? How do you support them in those situations? How do you make wellness a priority? Our general thought is that remote work as a tactical thing has been more or less solved. You know, we have hybrid offices. We have all these tools that will help you connect over the screen. We have Slack, we have Zoom, we have so many tools like this. But the habits necessary to build really high-performing teams are not there. People don't know how to manage remotely, and that's what we're trying to come in and solve. We're trying to help people build those habits so that they can create great teams 
that are better than the ones in person. How this came to be, I think, ties back to my story about authenticity. You know, growing up in a very inauthentic environment, I think I was always a rebellious kid. So I wanted nothing to do with my environment, obviously. And, you know, I think over time that manifested in this really important value of being authentic and being my, my, my true self. The reason that, you know, Kona is so important to me personally is that really what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring this level of authenticity to the workspace. We're trying to tell people, you know, it's okay to bring your full self to work, you know, whether you're feeling great or not so great. And I think that's really important because newer generations, Gen Z, millennials, tend to want to be more mission focused. They care more about the work that they do. This whole notion of going to work with a smile on your face, just doing your nine to five and that's it. And life is what's outside of work. That notion is super outdated because if you are passionate about the work that you do and you want to work more and you want to make a change in the world, you can't just put a smile on your face because you'll be miserable. It's like this whole idea of like, how do we bring authenticity to work? How do we get people to bring their full self to work and things like that? How we got started more specifically was we always wanted to do something around workforce management, something that affected how people work because we were all people people. You know, we all loved building relationships with folks and we all cared a lot about that. And we knew there was something wrong. Like we didn't know what was wrong. We felt that there was something wrong with how work was currently done. We started with an idea that nobody wanted. I spent so much time coding it up myself and um, we did no validation. We did no user research. We were like, you know what? I'm going to build something. I'm going to put it out and I'm going to see how people like it. Guess what? Nobody wanted it. And so that was a huge lesson. And since then, I think we pivoted two or three times. Well, okay, let's dive into the MVP. So that first version of the product you built. How long did it take you to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? I would say our MVP planning started way before we wrote a single line of code. After we made the pivot and after, you know, we miserably failed after putting so many engineering resources into this one product that we thought people would love, we were like, we should probably talk to some customers before we build anything. We were very humbled by that experience. And for context, we were a couple of naive college students back then. And so what we did was, and this was, I believe, October 2019, we interviewed a bunch of remote managers. We were asking questions like, what's the hardest part about your job? Why is that hard? We asked why so many times and, you know, other questions about being a manager remotely. And this was before COVID. So the remote managers we talked to, not that they had it down, but they had it much more down than COVID managers did. And we'd always hear the same answer over and over again. We'd hear relationships are hard. Or we'd hear things like, oh, time zones are hard. And then we're like, okay, we can't solve for time zones. What about time zones makes it hard? Why are time zones hard? And we kept digging, why is that hard? Why is that hard? And we eventually got to a place where we, re where we realized, like, it's not time zones that's hard. It's time zones making it hard to build relationships because they were a barrier to building them in the first place. So we realized that every single thing came down to the relationship. So we felt very confident about knowing the problem space very well, understanding and empathizing with managers that are in this position and are struggling in that way. 
Then it was all about finding problem solution fit. And the way we went about finding problem solution fit was experimental in the sense that we tried something, we saw if it worked, and we tried to scrap it. And the analogy I love using is um, finding this fit for us was kind of like throwing darts blindly at a dartboard. The best way to hit a bullseye is to throw a ton of darts and to learn from each dart that you miss. The worst thing to do is to spend a lot of time on one dart, make it super aerodynamic, paint it and make it look great and everything and throw it and it wildly misses the mark. I think the latter is more or less what we did. It was another mistake that we made. And not only that, but we had a very strong self-bias. For, for context, the product we were trying to build was personality related. We wanted people to take personality tests and to try to bond over that. And we really tried retrofitting that solution to the problem. And when it didn't work, we would convince ourselves. We were pitching to accelerator programs and investors back then, um, trying to raise a very small pre-seed. And because we were externally talking about how well the product was doing, we started believing in ourselves. We started believing ourselves that, oh, the product's not doing that bad. Oh, this is a great solution. We don't need a pivot. And to some extent, we, we almost convinced ourselves this was a good product and we had a lot of usage and things like that, where in reality, out of the 1,200 people we got on, maybe we had 50 people using it on a weekly basis, not even a daily basis, a weekly basis. There is a whole period of us lying to ourselves and succumbing to that bias in a way. Um, our MVP was a lot of things, a lot of mistakes, a lot of, you know, failures. But eventually we got to a point where we built a very simplistic habit. It's the red, yellow, green. It's the, how are you feeling? Super, super simple. And it caught on so quickly. People loved it. And it wasn't even a thing that they were asking us for. It was a thing that we thought that they needed. And that's kind of how we got there. And we eventually just started building up the system to, um, to more easily, no touch, build that habit in the first place. So, so from that point, right, you decide to go with the, you know, red, yellow, green, you're focusing on that type of product. How did you progress it from there and mature it? And I think what I'm curious about is, is how you built your roadmap or how you build your roadmap and, and how you go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. To start that off, there's always talk about, you know, is product market fit found or is it forged? Do you talk to your customers and be reactive and build what they need and eventually find product market fit that way? Or do you set out for a longer term mission and relentlessly prioritize based on your mission and adjust it based on what you learn about customers and just deliver on that mission? And I mean, I think both viewpoints are very valid. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Obviously, everything is really a balance, right? For us back then, we just graduated from Techstars. We just raised a pre-seed. We knew we had some money in the bank and we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, I'm sure that's a phrase that every founder will tell you at some point, but you know, I'm a college dropout. I just dropped out of college then. My two co-founders were my age as well. And so one graduated, one was doing school part-time. And so we're in this really weird place where we're a couple of 20-year-olds trying to tell managers how to do their jobs. And managers were coming to us to learn from us on how to do their jobs because we had positioned ourselves as thought leaders in the space. And it was just this really weird 
thing where we had to somehow build a product to do something that we had no experience in. In retrospect, I think a lot of that were gremlin thoughts. I think they were, it was imposter syndrome, you know, like thinking about it now, the perspective that we have now is, you know, we have a fresh radical perspective on what work should be. And that's why so many people came to us and asked us for help. But back then it was very like, we don't know what we're doing. We're trying to stumble our way. It's the whole classic zombie walk to product market fit, right? So what we did was we really just doubled down. We talked to our managers. We branded them as design partners. We brought them in. We like we had a shared Slack channel with every single one of them. We had bi-weekly syncs with every single one of them. My mornings would just be talking to customers. And the next year was just us talking to customers, going back, understanding the team use case really, really, really well, and doubling down on that. Uh, so we were very strongly in the reactive camp, in the product market fit was found camp. We would not necessarily build what managers would want us to build. We try to understand their motivators, and we try to build what we thought that they needed. We try to experiment a lot. We scrapped a lot of code. We did all these different things to try to find product market fit in that way. Well, let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And, and you know, what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? As with almost every answer that I've given, we started by making mistakes and then we eventually got really good at it. <laughs> so we spent more than six months hiring our first two engineers. You know, those six months were us not understanding where, what channels to find people in. We just didn't know what we were doing. And it took us six months to find our first two hires. And then after that, we ended up having another two join in January and another two join pretty recently. The general idea that we want to abide by is we want former founders or former product managers. And the reason we, we look for those is because we want people that have an incredible amount of autonomy and can take incredible ownership. And all I'd have to do is come in and align the team and make sure we all have a shared context. We all have a shared understanding of the customer. From the beginning, what, I, what we set out to do was we wanted to find people that had this incredible level of autonomy. And of course, we're great performers, but you know, all that we can screen uh, relatively easily. But this level of autonomy was the hardest thing because if you ask someone, can you take ownership? Of course, they're going to say yes. So we, we had to look for things like learning speed. We had to uh, look for things like, are they able to push back? We tried even doing things like during the interview process, we'd push back on a point that they'd make and we'd see if they had pushback or that, or we'd purposely make a bad point. So a point that didn't really have backing to it. And we'd see if they argue against it, you know, things like that. Strong opinions weekly help is the term for it, I guess. That's kind of the philosophy on the team that we wanted to create. And I mean, I can't drag enough about the team that we have right now. Everybody's incredible. Well, well let's talk about scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or have you been fighting this as you've grown and gained traction and as you mentioned you know learned from your mistakes there is this really good thread that i read the other day about yacht problems which are basically problems that you have that you don't have yet like 
problems that you will have given you succeed. You know, things like, oh, I need to worry about whether or not my yacht is going to break down, but you haven't even gotten to the point where you can buy a yacht in the first place. It's that general philosophy. That's kind of the way I see scalability or scalability problems. You know, obviously it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray area and it's very, very case by case. But I see scalability as a yacht problem. It's like if you try to solve for scalability too early, you won't even find the product market fit necessary to have that scale in the first place, especially from an engineering perspective. The way that we kind of think about things is we start by being very, very unscalable. So we start by doing things ourselves manually. And this doesn't just apply to the tech or to the product, but everything. We talked to all our customers, we custom built for them, we understood what they wanted. And on the engineering side, we wrote a ton of very unscalable experiments because we could get them out quickly and we wanted to get results as fast as we could. Once you feel like you've had something on a unscalable perspective, you then go to repeatable. So on the product side, we realized this red yellow green was working really well by being very unscalable and literally doing things that don't scale for our customers. Uh, built custom things for them. And then we started doing things repeatably. So we started creating some sort of playbook to repeatably be able to onboard these managers and build great cultures and turn entire team cultures around. Once we got that down, now we're working on scalability. So what that looks like is how do we then affect entire companies at scale? How do we turn entire organizations around from a cultural perspective? You know, we've gotten to this point because we did so much work and so much experimentation around the unscalable part and even the repeatable part. I don't believe you can get to scalability until you go through those two processes. And I mean, the same thing is true, I believe, for engineering and for culture and for hiring and all these different things. Like on a culture perspective, our culture right now is done very unscalably. You know, we're doing things. It's kind of like we're jumping off a cliff and building the culture on the way down or building a plane on the way down so we don't splat on the ground and die. It's the same kind of idea. Like we're just trying to figure out what culture works for all of us. And eventually we'll get to a point where we're, we'll repeatedly be able to do it. And then eventually after that, we'll be able to scale culture. And that's a big problem, right? Scaling culture. And nobody really knows how to scale culture. Well, Andrew, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? The one thing I am so, so proud of right now is just how incredible our team is. It's just incredible just watching them work and the level of autonomy that everybody has, the level of ownership that everyone has stepped up to take is absolutely incredible. Like, I don't understand how we got to this place. Like, it's just, it's so hard to put into words because culture is sometimes intangible. But the feeling that I have is I can just give somebody a spec and a design and they'll come back to it in less time than I expect and it'll be better than what I envisioned it to be based on the cultural context or the customer context and all that context that we both have. And it's just incredible watching the team work. Every single engineer on the team is so much more talented of an engineer than I am. Of course, I'm so proud of the amount of impact that we've been able to create on teams. I think culture and you know organizational structure and things like that it's probably one of the most important problems to solve because if you can't figure that out, you get to a point where everybody starts siloing and work starts being repeated 
and you get into this vicious cycle of frustration and a lack of shared communication context. Then nothing gets done. You have this massive organization, but nobody talks to each other. Everybody repeats work, you know, things like that. It's one of those things where, like, how people work is a really, really important problem. And I think the one thing that I'm really proud of is we've been able to, you know, change how that's done at a lot of different companies. And seeing that effect and hearing from customers and things like that is always so rewarding. This will be interesting because you've mentioned mistakes throughout our conversation, but I want to key in on on perhaps one, perhaps the most impactful one. So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think one of our biggest superpowers is that we don't really listen to conventional advice because a lot of conventional advice is very generic and doesn't really do you very well, especially in a very specific scenario. So it's a blessing because we pave our own path. We're trying to do something radical, you know? It's like, if we follow all the conventional advice, we'd be a perfectly average company and die. But at the same time, that also means that we learn almost everything the hard way, which I think is a really good thing because then we truly understand why mistakes um, or why the conventional advice exists. Or even better, we make a breakthrough and we find something that's even better than the conventional advice. I mentioned this a little bit before, but it's, definitely the lying to ourselves in multiple different ways and I, I i always tell people that the hardest part about my job for me is overcoming my own biases how do i get over my preconceived notion of what good means an example of this is when we were first trying to hire our first two engineers that when, when we spent six months doing that one thing that i noticed about myself was that i would automatically really like candidates that typed fast. I didn't notice it at first. It was an unconscious bias. As soon as someone typed fast, I was like, oh, they're a great engineer. Obviously that's not true because there's almost no correlation, but it was a bias of mine that I didn't even realize until my co-founder called it out. You know, that was a huge mistake we made. That was one of the reasons that we spent so much time looking for engineers because like finding engineers that have Different hiring for diversity is so inherently about overcoming your own biases because you're inherently hiring for people that are different from you, and people tend to like people that are very similar to they uh, to who they are. Another big bias, of course, um, is what I was talking about when it comes to lying to ourselves. And I have two co-founders, just three of us. Um, Sid, Kareen, or my two co-founders. Sid and I are both very technical. We're very engineering brain. Kareen majored in English. Kareen is a lot more creative brained. Sid and I have this tendency to, and it balances super, super well. Um, and Sid and I have this tendency to really get, or we used to have this tendency to really get attached to a single solution. And the reason we lied to ourselves so much was because it was almost like we were attached to the solution. We didn't want to throw away our work. It was a very deep case of some cost fallacy and we didn't want to be wrong. And we had a little bit of ego back then. We didn't want to um, we didn't want to believe that the last six months were a waste, you know, that's kind of scary. I remember one day, this was still in college, and this was when we were deep into the, we were lying to ourselves. I went up to Kareem's uh, dorm room, actually, at the time, and we were just talking about things. And I don't know why this is such a core memory, but I came in, I'm like, hey, here are our numbers, because I'm very analytical. And they're like, doesn't that kind of seem off to you? You know, like, aren't these kind of low? I don't know. 
And we had a back and forth and we eventually were like, we kind of need to scrap this product. It's not something that works very well. And so, yeah, I mean, I think most of the mistakes that we made are very, very soft and people related. It's very much about biases and, you know, our perspective on the world. So what does the future look like for Kona, the product and for your team? Team wise, we're still hiring a couple engineers. We just want to build the team to a place where we're able to find product market fit. From a product perspective, I think these are two very interlinked things. From a product perspective, we're still on our search for product market fit. We know that we have something on the team level because we spent a year doing it. You know, on the team side, we know it works really well. You look at our new user graphs, how many new users pick it up over time within a single company. For example, we um, we're working with a company called Oyster. Um, they're I think 400 people at this point. Once one manager found it and started using it, it started spreading like wildfire. Now we have, I think, like 60% or more of their company on it. And it's just so amazing to watch. So we know that on a team perspective, it works really well. And we know people recommend it a lot. And we know that we have something there. The problem is, it's not that simple. We can't just waltz into a team and they can just start using it because we're a Slack tool. Inherently, Slack tools on a security perspective, you need to install it for the entire company so that a single team can use it, which is kind of a weird implementation from Slack's perspective. Security is a huge blocker. So we realize we can't, it's just not possible for us to have a single manager in a hundred different companies and have it spread bottom up like that. Of course, we still think bottom up is a really important strategy because it works really well for us. But we have to incorporate some sort of top-down in there as well. Now we also need to find product market fit from a company perspective. What do executives want? How can we slot into their L&D strategy? Kona works really well in L&D because nobody really knows how to actually retain that information. We come in and we help managers build habits. It's almost like a match made in heaven. And how do we improve people's experience? How do we make Kona benefit within a company? For us, we're, we're, we're at the place where we are iterating on the team use case. We know we have something. We know it's fundamentally very sound. We have incredible retention numbers. We have incredible daily usage numbers. 55 or 60% of the people that use Kona on a monthly basis also use it on a daily basis, which is absolutely incredible. Now it's about not changing the way a team thinks about their culture and how they build their team, but changing the way an organization thinks about their culture and what they prioritize and things like that. And so from a product perspective, that's where we're at. We want to find product market. We're a very seed stage company. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. And on a team side, we just want a world-class team. We'll take our time with hiring. We just need the right people to help us find that product market fit. And we want to do so with a good solid amount of runway because of, you know, macroeconomic conditions. Let's switch to you, Andrew. Who influences the way that you work? Name someone or multiple people that you look up to and why. Easy answer is my co-founders. Man, they are so good at what they do. I, I'm not really the type of person to have influence in the sense that like, I really respect Elon Musk, for example. I'm not that kind of person because the way I think about things is it's, it's really important to have mentors to help you through things. But I want to build my own identity. You know, I don't want to copy 
somebody that's been successful and just do what they did because I want to build my own identity. Inherently, we're trying to do something that's kind of radical, you know, like authenticity in the workspace. You think it's not radical, but it kind of is. People don't know how to do that. And I mean, that kind of expands to my personal life as well. I think the reason I can't give a good answer is because, you know, there's a lot of great advice out there and I do read a lot and I do listen to these lectures and I do look up to a lot of people. But at the end of the day, I don't have necessarily an influence that I want to be or someone that I want to replicate because I want to be myself and I want to create my own identity in this world. Last question, Andrew. So, so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give them having gone down this road a bit? I feel like the only advice I can really give, I, I feel like this entire session I've been, you know, saying don't follow conventional advice and <laughs> now I need to give conventional advice. Um, I guess I would say take the leap and be unapologetically yourself. I think anybody that starts their own company is inherently saying, I have a solution that's better than any other solution in this world right now. And I think as a founder, you really need to lean into that. You can't let imposter syndrome creep its way in because that's destructive. So I would say that. Just take the leap and be unapologetically yourself. Oh, also get an executive coach. Those are so helpful. I think one of the biggest investments you can make as a founder is in yourself. So that's 100%. Or a therapist, that works too. That's great advice, Andrew. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Kona. Of course. Thank you for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. big money when you start your next project today at menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on menards.com save big money and